This is an emergency transmission from TV Cream. Hello, I'm Jack and this is TV Cream Stays Indoors. In this podcast, I send someone a link to an old TV show and then once they've watched it, I call them up to find out what they made of it. Today, I'm talking to David Bodicum, who is safely indoors somewhere, but where, David? I'm based in southwest London, in my oh, little loft. Sounds lovely. Now, David, Wikipedia describes you as an English puzzle author and games consultant, which I think is reasonably accurate. Yes, I mean, I suppose I do puzzle writing, question writing, question producing, some a TV producer, format developer, and provide content for... Um, even things like magazines and newspapers around the world. And I've also had the great pleasure and great frustration of trying to devise some quiz shows. So I was interested uh, in talking to you about, for want of a better term, those times when quiz show formats come under stress. Who was the curate who first identified the leaf warblers by their songs? Where did David Lack do his classic field study of the robin? Does that open things up for you, Lindsay? Not really. <laughs> Your mum knows what it is. I don't think all the times we've done Ask the Audience the Lifeline, an audience has ever been wrong. No. <laughs> Troy Mallow, please. <laughs> Never ever happened before. We've got a camera. We have an empty box. Oh. <laughs> Let's do a C. A C! I'm not going to stay on the stage with this troublemaker. Now, there is only one solution to this almost insoluble problem. Pass. Come this on, is Troy. stressing me out. Yeah. It's, it's stressing us out as well. <laughs> this is going to take some time. Let's have a look. Instead of sending you a single programme to watch, which is what we normally do, I sent you a playlist of clips that I think will let us get into some of these subjects. So the first clip comes from an episode of 15 to 1, which aired on Channel 4 on the 23rd of March 2000. Can you explain what is particularly notable about that clip? Well, this is a thing, I don't know if it has an official term. It's something I like to call stretch and squeeze. Thank you. Before we go... I know that at the beginning of this series, I explained that we couldn't answer every letter we received. There are literally hundreds of them every series. But it is possible for me, when we have a minute to spare, like now, to answer a few on the same subject. And it's a, a familiar enemy uh, when you're trying to develop a show. So it's, it's the thing about trying to get everything to finish roughly according to the time slot. You don't want it to finish too early, otherwise you're going to be mad filling. And you don't want it to uh, have too much because otherwise you're going to have a, a nightmare of an edit. Um, and so what we see here is uh, the, the show has ended early and they've been able to work out that they're short and maybe there's not a great deal else they could do um, to, to pad it out, so they've had to sort of add in some extra content. It was just a piece of sloppy research on our part, and it does us no harm to be kept on our toes by vigilant viewers. That's all for today. We'll be back tomorrow. See you then. To me, 15 to 1, I mean, it's a venerable quiz show, but 
as a quisho purist, which is, is how I'm going to loftily describe myself, I'd say it's actually a bit of a flawed um, format because of the degree of stretch and squeeze. So where in this show does the problem arise? Well, the big variance you have is in round one. Two questions each in the first round. One correct answer from you to survive. Off we go. Uh, you have this issue of if you've got both of your first round questions wrong and you sit down, I'm sorry. And automatically, we've got we're down one player, and I I know for a fact that they used rather random means in the very early series to try and make sure that um, three out of the fifteen players were sitting down by the end of round one. And it's three down, twelve to go, and those three must now leave. Four down, eleven to go. Five down, ten to go. Six down, nine to go. And sometimes there might be there might be as many as seven. So what you'll then see is William G going, oh, know, we've lost quite a few here. And he might start to say things like, Bill, your next question's on chemistry. Which chemical element? And so he'll start to sort of try and draw things out and maybe he might have a little words about, oh, gosh, that was, you know, you're a bit close on that one. Or, yeah, I'll take it. The biggest asthma district in the world? Horrible song, I always thought. Uh, so he would do his best to fill in as best he can, uh, knowing that they're likely to be short. Now, another interesting thing about if you're running long... I'm not really surprised that at the end of round one, it's none down, 15 to go, but Anthony, better tell us what the position is. It has this issue of all the lives, the score is all in front of you. I'm going to explain round two to you. I'm going to ask you the first question off this pack. An incorrect answer will cost you one of those two lives, and I shall move on to Tony. And if you were to ever try and cut out a portion of the show where any of those lives are lost, then suddenly somebody's light will, will suddenly go black, and you sort of go, oh, hang on a second, I don't remember him missing out on his second question. If you give me a correct answer, I will then ask you to nominate one of the contestants still standing on the semicircle, who then has to face the next question off the pack. If they give me a correct answer, the chance to nominate will be theirs. If they give me an incorrect answer, it will cost them a life, and I will come back to you for another number, or if you like the same number. Now, there are, is there such a thing whereby, let's say, contestant one passes to two, two passes to three, and then three passes back to one, and they all get their questions right, potentially you could snip out all three of those right answers and then just sort of go back to question. Uh, player one again. Number one, John, in which British city is Waverley the main railway station? Edinburgh. It is a number, please, John. Four. Who did Sheriff Pat Garrett shoot and kill in July 1881? Billy the Kid. A number, please. Number one. Which acid is used in car batteries, John? Fortunately, that doesn't happen as nearly as often as you might think it does. And those are really your only opportunities, aren't they? Those, those are the only bits of gameplay that you can cut out on mass, really, aren't they? Because essentially nothing of consequence has happened, really. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you, you just can't have <laughs> uh, material parts of the game edited out. If you have a player that you're rooting for, remember them get, uh, losing two lives, and then they sit down. They sort of go, hang oh, a second, that's not right. Um, we have had suggestions on Only Connect that uh, I worked on for eight series, that um, maybe we should sort of have more questions and then sort of edit out uh, the boring questions and just leave in the interesting ones. And, they, and, then, and then we would say, well, 
wouldn't then the score not make any sense? And then people would go, yeah, but we do that on uh, Would I Lie to You? And then we go, well, yeah, but I mean, on Would I Lie to You, people aren't really keeping track no. of the score. They're, they're just sort no. of in, enjoying the band. It's a MacGuffin on a panel show, the score. Yes, although it's surprising how many panel shows do bother to keep score because like, without that, you have no point. So th this this is a whole nightmare of, of like if you have a, a, an unlucky set of variants, if you have good contestants, if you have bad contestants, um, these all cause co stretch and squeeze problems. So if possible, you've got to try and design it out of the format. Going back to Only Connect, um, in the pilot, the uh, wall round was actually at the end. Uh, which was weird for all sorts of reasons. I mean, one is that the losers are not on screen, potentially, or the winners are not on screen, potentially, depending on who's going first. Um, and also, there's only a limited number of points that you could win in the wall round. So if, if you're going into the wall round 11 points behind, then frankly, it's pointless. So uh, the missing vowels round, which was, I think, second, uh, was brought to the end, and then we just did the, the classic thing of we're going to play to the gong. And you're out of time. Well, I must say, not a very impressive no. round from either group. Now, why do that? Well, the thing is that the wall round, uh, potentially you could solve it in 30 seconds. You've solved the wall. Very well done. Not an easy wall. What about the connections? And maybe you don't even, you don't even solve it in 2 minutes 30. So there's a very, very large amount of stretch of squeeze in there. We still need to sort of make up the difference with missing vowels. So we just do the thing of we play to the gong. That's that's how we, we get around the problem of getting the right amount of content to, to fill up the rest of the show. Um, that's how it's supposed to happen in practice. Uh, once we did, for whatever reason, have an issue, they just we were about 45 seconds short uh, so we had to, to get everybody back at the next recording session and record an ex extra bit of chat and then insert it <laughs> and uh, and uh, luckily nobody noticed time is a very strange beast when you're recording a tv show so are there other quiz shows that routinely cut out whole bits because they're inconsequential, do you know? Um, I think you'll sometimes see on University Challenge, there's sort of like a slightly odd edit where maybe they throw to the audience and cut back. And that's probably happened because they've asked a load of starter questions that haven't, uh, that haven't been answered correctly. And so they've sort of effectively rewound the tape and, and reached for the slightly easier pack of questions. Apparently, they try and uh, get people to answer well, one or two of those just to build the confidence back up, and then they're back on the rails. So we're talking here about um, quiz shows and game shows under stress, and obviously the thing that introduces the most stress to a uh, format is contestants. So I think that leads us on then to the second clip. So it's a report from Good Morning America from the 4th of February, 2014. The story of the reigning Jeopardy champ attracting attention with his highly unorthodox strategy that has a lot of people buzzing, including our Josh. So has he cracked the code to winning? Here he is. What's his name again? Arthur Chu. Arthur Chu. And Lindsay Davis has the story. <laughs> so this is about uh, Arthur Chu, who was a contestant on Jeopardy this is Jeopardy! And he uh, employed in what was perceived to be an annoying 
tactic of scattergunning around the board, um, bouncing from category to category, which uh, Jeopardy fans call the Forest Bounce. The Forest Bounce was named after former Jeopardy champion Chuck Forrest. It was actually his unpredictable style of play that he first implemented. Uh, a lot of what he did was not really new. Hmm. Uh, it's just that people have quite short memories. Yes. Uh, as I've just said, the, this tactic of bouncing around from category to category, uh, it, other players have done it in the past. Yeah. Um, and the people sort of go, well, hang on a second, the way he's using the board is very um, abrupt. Two doesn't play one category at a time from top to bottom. If you go from one category to a completely different category, it takes a little time for people's mental gears to catch up. And if you're the one who knows what's coming next because you're picking it and you're leaving your opponents behind a little bit, it gives you that edge. Or maybe he's trying to sort of find all the daily doubles. Answer. Daily double. The other one. Beat the other contestants to that quickly so that they can't use that against him to catch up. Um, it is a um, tactic that a recent, more recent player called Jim Tolshauer um, also used to very great effect. And he bet big on the daily doubles and uh, he won an awful lot of money in, in the fewer shows than other contestants. There's two trains of thought here, which are that on the one hand, you want players to play the game to their best ability. Uh, but on the other hand, audiences don't like people being disruptive. His unorthodox uh, technique isn't just racking up his winnings. So you're at 3,395. It's causing an online uproar with diehard Jeopardy fans. This Asian on Jeopardy is one of the worst human beings on the planet. The Asian guy on Jeopardy is such a cocky bastard. I hope your wife dies. So I think we can agree he's not breaking any rules, but is he going against the spirit of the game, do you think? There's the tradition of the game, and there's what people are perhaps supposed to do. It, this sort of angle shooting or trying to find marginal wins uh, is is not necessarily anything new. Uh, contestants will always try and find a, a way of playing differently uh, to give themselves a, a an advantage. To an extent, people will find that amusing, and then it'll get annoying. Let's say on Blockbusters, you deliberately play around the board to rack up money and avoid getting your Blockbusters. That might be funny at once, but like after a while, there will be some soft pressure exerted by the host of like, can you please pick an R so we can all go home? A word will be said, and there's, there's only so much you can do if it's within the rules. <laughs> Where it gets difficult is what I would call sandbagging. And that's when the marginal advantage has got so great that actually it's more beneficial for you to play the game badly. So, for example, on Wheel of Fortune, you could sort of look at the stats and go, if you are the first player to face a hangman-type puzzle, um, the chance that I get a wrong letter or I hit a bankrupt or something is quite high. So maybe it takes like the third or the fourth player around before there's any decent number of letters before the puzzle becomes solvable. So perhaps uh, a few people might deliberately throw 
um, say at all. I think there's an X in the puzzle and there isn't. Nora. Z. Say that again for me. Z. Did you say Z? Zulu? You did say Z. Okay. Uh, no, there's no Z. And hope that the puzzle comes back to them later as a way of you getting a marginal advantage. Um, so, so when you're doing that sort of sandbagging, you've then got to put in an extra rule in your format to make sure that there's enough rewards for people to keep on playing. There was a show called The Search on Channel 4 where the final three contestants uh, wrote checks to each other, and that was their way uh, of ensuring that whoever won the final prize, the other two people could, could then bank their checks for a third of the prize. And it was sort of basically their way of, of, of splitting the prize three ways, regardless of who won the final. <laughs> uh, so they kind of slightly outsmarted the producers that way. It can be interesting what uh, the contestants do behind your backs. If we bring it back to, to Jeopardy, um, obviously we talked about Arthur Chu using the Forest Bounds tactic, which arguably I think only gave him a marginal advantage. The, the, the thing actually that I think helped him far more was the way that he plays the end game. Final Jeopardy coming up. Here it is, 20th century arts, and we'll reveal a clue in a moment. It's the three contestants who are playing in the end game of Jeopardy, and essentially they're asked one final question, and they're given some information about it. And what they have to do in secret is to bet um, an amount of their winnings to date on answering that question. And the thing that I think Arthur does is that he... By and large, his wager isn't calculated on the basis of whether he thinks he's going to get the question right. He's trying to create the most successful possible outcomes for himself based upon the respective score of the other contestants. That's what he's doing, isn't it? Yes, he, he said that he would sometimes bet for a draw. And there was something in the rules, quite unusually, that said that if players are tied, they both get to come back, or if there's a three-way tie, they all get to come back on the next show. It, normally, uh, the contestants would try and win by a dollar. Yeah. Uh, whereas he is trying to win for a tie. Mm -hmm. uh, so he will just bid one dollar less than what the usual game theory says you should do. Right. Uh -huh. uh, and so that way um, he will have the same player to try and beat tomorrow and he thinks that uh, he's more successful doing it that way. Yes. Now, something that you said to me when we were, were talking about uh, having this conversation was you said that sometimes on Only Connect, people deliberately solve a wall slowly. So at first I thought, God, why would they do that? What's the advantage? I, I have a theory, which I want to put to you and find out if this is correct or not, which is mm. that if I'm a winning team, and I'm going up to the wall run, and I know I've got a healthy lead. It's in my interest to make that last for as long as possible, because then I know that the missing vowels round will be as short as possible, which means the number of points that are available is reduced. Is that is that the thinking, or have I got it wrong? No, that's that's right. I mean, we don't edit out the wall. If if you want, to, if you've sort of pretty much solved this in your head, and there's a minute left, and you want to stand at that wall in silence for 57 seconds and then just suddenly press the last two buttons, you're welcome to do so. You've solved the grid. Okay. We're going to stop the clock just when it thought... Ooh, that was close. Just when it thought <laughs> you were going to get no groups at all. Yeah. You've got all four. There have been instances when people think they've solved it and then when they do press the last couple of buttons, it's, it goes, ah, ah, and they go, oh, no, we've got that wrong. Uh, but, so you do have to be a little bit careful with that tactic. Um, but 
basically you're right. Uh, it, that's how it works. I would say that what is more the case is they will know that on the other team, there is the 2009 All-Wales Scrabble champion on the team who's been quiet all game, and he's just poised to ring in on conflated paint colours and poets uh, or something like that. Um, there will be teams who have spent weeks writing emails to each other with vowels. Um, they will have pre-agreed their buzzing in strategy in the dressing room. <laughs> There's even been one or two arguments about about that uh, sometimes. So if uh, if you think that the other team are, are going to be red hot at vowels, then you I want to try and load the dice so that uh, there's a bit less time for that at the end, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to move us on to the next clip then uh, that I sent you. I asked you to watch a very famous bit, I would say, from an episode of the ITV quiz Golden Balls, in which Nick Corrigan and Ibrahim Hussain face the split or steal final game. So to cut a long story short, they each have to decide in secret whether they're going to split the prize fund between them or try and steal the lot for themselves. Ibrahim and Nick, you now face a very straightforward choice. So if they both choose split, that's what happens to the cash. They get half the cash each. If they both choose steal, they lose the lot. If one of them chooses split and the other steal, then the person who chooses steal gets the lot. Before they make their decision, the host, Jasper Carrot, gives them a few minutes to talk about it. OK, before I ask you to choose, I think you have some talking to do to each other. What, what's happened in every episode of Golden Balls, as I understand it, is that the two contestants are trying to persuade the other that they're both going to split it. However, in this instance, what Nick says to Ibrahim is, Ibrahim, I want you to um, trust me. 100% I'm going to pick the steel ball. Sorry, you're going to... I'm going to choose the steel ball. You're going to take the I steel. want you to do split, and I promise you that I will split the money with you. Well, after you've took the steel? Yeah. You're going to take steel? Yeah. I'm going to take split? Yeah. So you take the money... And I will split it with you. After the show? Yeah. <laughs> when someone sent me that clip, and the first time I saw that, I think for about the first 30 seconds, I was completely bamboozled by why he'd done that. What's going on there? It's a, such a highly unusual set of circumstances. Yes. Um, it's, it's, I don't think there's been anything si similar to it before or since, if I'm honest. It's, um, um, it, it's, it's an interesting one because he is promising something that he cannot uh, conclusively prove. Abraham, I promise you I'll do that. If, if, if you do steal, we both walk away with nothing. I'm telling you 100% no, I'm going to do it. I appreciate that. He, uh, he, well, I mean, like, there's nothing to say that the producers aren't going to whisk him straight into a car at the back and he, he couldn't necessarily track down the other player. I'm 100% sure that the, the producers will have covered that eventuality um, because it's just a, um, a common thing that um, people will do. There was a, another show called... Pick me. We need an A! We need a B! We need a C! But who's it going to be? Where um, you had to choose one of the players depending on the answers, and some answers were correct and some were wrong. And sometimes people would sort of go, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll make a deal with you and I'll, I'll make it up to you after the show. And they, they would go, well, 
like maybe you could, but we're not going to enforce the deal. Ibrahim, honestly, 100% going to steal. Um, there was a, a format that was a little bit like this show called Divided, where the contestants had a, a three-way split and they had to sort of work out whether they take the 60% share, the 30% share, or the 10% share pot. And the player that was worst at the quiz always uh, wanted the 60% share. You failed to agree. Your cash starts counting down now. And I just felt like sometimes, like, if you were cast on one of those shows, uh, you sort of go, no, oh, they've, they've put this contestant on here, and, like, no matter what I say, they're just going to dig in the heels, and we're just going to watch £80,000 go down the toilet, and there was nothing I felt I could do. So I've got to go off I'm for not it. I mean, it's a waste of money, losing all Are that money. Are willing to see it go down to zero? Yeah. I'm not budging. Other than for me to swallow my pride, let them have most of the money, and me go home with 700 quid. What do you say? Come on, guys. Come on. Please, come on. Right. I'm taking you. Oh, I see. Yes! Come on! Well done, Chris. Thank you. Ibrahim, I'm going to steal. So you've got the choice. We, this can go on all night, and these people have got to get up for breakfast. <laughs> Nick, choose split or steal. All right, I'll tell you what, I'm going to go with you. OK. I'm going to go with I you. I promise you I will split it. You cannot change your balls now. Split or steal? With Nick and some of the other examples, arguably these people outsmarted the game but stayed within the rules. But let's just step beyond that just for a minute. Which game shows, if any, do you think are most susceptible to cheating? I don't think there's been that many instances of people out and out cheating. Uh, it's only it's only sort of very minor angle shooting, uh, I would call it, where people have maybe found a little system. I mean, on Mr. and Mrs., uh, I think there was a couple who uh, famously sort of worked out that if they just picked the first answer in alphabetical order, so if, um, then in that show, the host would say, you know, what's the last thing your husband would take off at night before he gets into bed? Is it his slippers? Is it his pyjamas? Uh, is it his glasses? And no matter which way round the host would read out the question, you sort of go, uh, well, G is the first in the alphabet, so I'll, I'll pick glasses. Um, and so that's how they got to match with their partner who was asked the same question later. The, the main issue you have is with the question fidelity and making sure that people uh, didn't have the answers. I think there was a, a show somewhere in Europe where somebody was kind of caught going into the toilets where one of the production crew had left the answers in the toilet for them to sort of go and read. So there's a number of uh, things that you have to do when you're sharing computers or uh, on an office network when you're writing for shows you, you've got to have passworded spreadsheets and uh, have faith in the people that you that you have working for you that they're not going to pass the answers on to people that they know are going to be contestants. I also remember that there was um, a bit of a, an unfortunate incident on Millionaire in the States where 
they managed to wire in the computers a bit wrong so that the contestant managed to get the host screen. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, you've got to be, be careful of uh, technical issues. There was um, the uh, Perfection show on BBC Two. Welcome to the quiz show that demands nothing less than perfection. Uh, where they worked out that if you were sat as a contestant and you were slightly leaning to one side and sort of moved your head in a certain direction, you could see a reflection of the host screen and so they had recorded the, the entire series and so they went oh um we can't be sure that that hasn't some way affected the outcomes of all of these programs so to their very much their credit uh, they said right we're going to put them all in the bin and we're going to do it all again but remember on this show we only pay for absolute perfection goodbye <laughs> Hammer, Nick, you, you now face a very straightforward, straightforward choice. Split or steal? Yes! Congratulations, you have both split and each received £6,800. Pounds. Why did you put me through that? Okay, so the last clip that I sent you was for a game show that I would say is entirely immune from strategizing or cheating, which is Red or Black. And I asked you to take a look at a bit of an episode of the Fight TV quiz from the 4th of September 2011, mainly just to marvel at the format. The doors are closing now. Do the doors, guys. Red or Black? Red or Black? You've made your minds up. Let's lock down your decision. We're about to fire the horse 70 metres into the air. So, David, are you happy? Oh, happy? I don't know. Do you feel, do you feel lucky? Do you feel lucky? For one million pounds. Red or black? So, this came from Psycho Productions, who were at the peak of their high-stakes entertainment shows, most notably The X Factor. Can you explain to our listeners the format to Red or Black? So the way that Red or Black was sold to ITV was that um, Simon Cowell just said, you know that moment in a film where someone sort of bets it all on Red or Black and the, the ball is rolling around the roulette wheel and you, you sort of gasp as you wait for the ball to drop into one pocket or the other. That is the moment that we're looking for. So they take um, an, uh, a large audience and they uh, assign them red or black. And a number of stunts happen that might involve, let's say, a, um, a, a motorcycle stunt rider who's a, got a red jacket on and one that's got a black jacket on. And they see uh, which of the two stunt riders um, can reach the the highest height before they start knocking off a, a bar or something like that. So there's, there's these sort of grand visions of red or black games being played and, and you get whittled away down to a few people. And then at the, at the very, very end, the one person who's remaining. From 1,000 contestants, he is the one. And now he will face a decision worth one million it's the opportunity to say, I want the red or the black. Now, so far, you've gone with red six times and black three times. Now, I know you told us before the break you had a, an idea in your head of what you're going to go for, so I'm going to ask you the question one final time. This time it's for one million pounds. Kevin, red or black? 
and had a couple of different machines in the end game, but essentially uh, a random result is assigned. Red. Red! And if you get the right result, you win a million pounds, and if you get the wrong one, you, get, you win nothing. It's all or nothing. It's one decision, and it's one million pounds. So what do you think of the format? Well, if I was a contestant on Red or Black and I suddenly remembered that I had an appointment that I needed to get to, so I wanted to try and get myself eliminated as quickly as possible, I stand just as much chance of winning the show as everybody else because I, I have no, there's nothing I can do, is there? And to me, that, that takes away any sense of jeopardy. What do you think of it? That's exactly the point I was going to make, which is that jeopardy, to me, is about a decision. There's no decision in this format you sort of go okay i've got to the end game but i haven't got to the end game by any form of skill or judgment i've got here through dumb luck and the, whether i win the prize or not is dumb luck i mean yes there's sort of tension in like whether I win the prize or not but i think it was more exciting if somebody won a seventeen thousand pound car on price is right because at least they did so by judging the price of the car or the price of the showcase package and red or black is i think quite similar to a previous show called the national lottery big ticket was on the BBC, which had a tie-in to the National Lottery, and people were supposed to uh, rub off uh, like three TV symbols on their scratch card, and that enabled them to go on the show and to win some money. But the fact that they got to the end game was, again, luck, because you can't have any skill in a lottery game. It's illegal. So they weren't even playing the games. They had like the celebrity champions who were kind of playing on their behalf. Hey Steve, here we are. It is Blow Your Money. We have £100,000 waiting for you up there. You just need to find it. How are you feeling? All right. All right. <laughs> Don't worry, you've got a good team playing for you tonight. We've got Shan Lloyd and we've also got Graham Nickel from the Warwickshire Wildlife Trust. They're going to be pressing the lucky buttons to hopefully bring home £100,000. I think the games are fairly largely luck-based anyway. Um, so, uh, again, if you have no regret about your uh, a bad decision that you've made, there is no jeopardy in the format. The wheels at speed and the ball is live. Kevin, when you're ready, it's over to you. You think, well, how did Red or Black end up on our screens? And it's probably because of, you know, it does sound exciting when you say it's that moment when you're when there's red or black. So at the end game, they made that decision red or black. So there is tension, arguably. Most people in Kevin's hometown of Cardigan, Staffordshire, have also gone red online. It's in red. There is a decision, but somehow it doesn't work as Jeopardy. Why, why is that decision empty? Why does that not work in the way that the decision on Millionaire works, if I'm going to play the question or not? Um, I think it's what you might call like a, 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 in mathematics a symmetrical situation in that if, you, if you're trying to work out certain problems in mathematics, you sort of go, well, we don't care about whether the first coin toss is a head or a tail, so we might as well just assume it's a tail. It's a similar sort of thing here. It's sort of like we, we don't really care whether our decision was red or black. 
because there's an independent thing happening with the machine deciding whether it's red or black. It's a red wing! So it doesn't feel like we are making a conscious decision to win or not. It's almost like we have decided something and then it's the machine deciding whether it's going to match us or not match us. Fate is not jeopardy. It's, fate is not a decision by, by definition. It's not a decision. It's just luck. Now, we talked about millionaires a little bit there. Can you unpick a little bit as to why what it is that it does so well? And I suppose I'm thinking here in terms of the amount of information that the contestant has and, and the various factors that they have at play to weigh up. Well, I think the thing about how do you define what a game is is, is an interesting one. And to me, it's about you start at the start, you have a goal at the end, you have a, a number of mini tasks to do along the way so you, you could use this model for anything like super mario land like you you, know, you start at, at level one the princess gets stolen you have to find rescue the princess um you have to go through the worlds um and to do that you have to jump over various levels and and get to the end and what you have is uh, to get you to the end is resources so in this case Resources are largely the lifelines. You've used up your 50-50. You can still phone a friend. You could still ask the audience. And you burn through the resources, and then you have to sort of work out when you want to stop. The key thing that they found encouraged people to play on was to show them the next question. Have a look at £125,000. You're not committed to play. Have a look at it. It costs you nothing to look. It's like window shopping. Have a look. That was... A, a real genius moment. Nobody ever, ever dared to even do that with a show offering a thousand pounds, never mind a million pounds. And the fact is multiple choice, isn't it? Because you can always take a guess. So it suddenly becomes less of a binary thing, doesn't it? Because you, you, you think, well, I don't know the answer to that. But as soon as you see four options... It's, it's such a common trick to use these days. But the whole way in which they had to redesign the screen so that the, it, it would accommodate the four options and make it look beautiful and, and not too heavy was a, a big thing as well. And that's something that other shows have since copied. So there is the, the whole informational thing. But there's a mathematical thing that's going on here, which is that why double the money? Why does that work as a gamble? Well, it's because people's value of money is different to the actual amount of money. So if if I was to say uh, to Jack, do you want a Mars bar? You might go, oh yeah, that's, that's great. And I'll go, right, do you want three Mars bars? He's going to go, well, okay that's fine but yeah fine that's that's better than my mars bar that's, then i might go well do you want a thousand mars bars you go well ooh, gosh i mean i don't have really any need for a thousand mars bars but maybe i'll sort of go well that, that's maybe five or ten times better than one mars bar but i don't really need that many more mars bars so what happens is that the curve starts to tail off and get flatter and flatter so in order to encourage people to gamble more you've got to offer that much more money at each stage because although you're offering double the money 
in terms of a gamble, it's only maybe a slightly more marginal thing. The, the official term for it is utility. The utility of the money is not necessarily the same as the actual amount of the money. And so by doubling the amount of the money, you always ensure that it's, it seems worthwhile to the contestant to continue, uh, if only for the, the want of knowing their right answer. Millionaire isn't immune from gamesmanship and possibly cheating. So we've seen people try and play the system on Millionaire as much as we have on other quiz shows. And do you think that is just something that comes with the territory and that is just an, an attribute of a proper quiz, which is as soon as you construct something like this, then there is always going to be a margin and a space for people to try and exploit it in some way or another, which has been unforeseen by the creator. In practical terms, there will be certain people that will try and find ways to make money. As we saw with Millionaire, there was certain ways of exploiting the uh, ring up system so that uh, you had more chance of getting on the show. There have been situations where contestants have deliberately tried to interfere with the equipment. So if it was like a fast finger first question, uh, I think this is more in America, this sort of thing happened, and you didn't like the look of the question, uh, you might deliberately knock out the lead that attached to your monitor, and then you have to put your hand up and go, sorry, uh, my monitor stopped working, and and the, in the hope that you get a different question that was more to your liking. So they had to put uh, cameras on all of the contestants to ensure that if there was a technical malfunction, that they could prove it was your fault for pulling the lead out. <laughs> but in terms of the actual format, you, you hope that there's no way of... Uh, or very little way of of playing it badly. I think that's the if you don't mind if people play it well and find an angle that that means that they've done really well. But when the the scales tip and you find the hang in a second by negative play, by sandbagging, by sort of choosing to pass or bet a little, the show doesn't work. In terms of the number of skills you have to have as a development producer, I reckon it's probably something akin only to maybe an astronaut. Because you've got <laughs> to know about things like uh, what the camera can cope with, physical construction of sets and games, how people behave, mathematics, legal affairs. I, I could list another 15 roles, but it it's just a vast range of skills that are uh, game show producer has to have and probably it's the most difficult area of television i would say almost because you could shoot a documentary badly and still have something to edit at the end of it but people can always see that maybe there's a really big flaw in a format and you can't hide it very easily if players have found a way of exploiting it So, David, how did my quiz show playlist fit into your day? Was it fun revisiting some of those old formats? It was fun, and yet it slightly sets me on edge in terms of the, <laughs> the, the, the agony of like how difficult game shows are to devise. And um, it's fun putting people under pressure. I really like being sort of the puppet master behind the screen 
and sort of enjoying people trying to work out my questions. But on the other hand, in terms of the format, it's such a difficult job to do when you're trying to devise things. On all the things I've worked on, I've been working on the first series of probably more than half of them. And so I've had to help try and get the questions or the games to work with the format. It's such a difficult thing. And when people sort of roll their eyes and go, oh, there's a new quiz show on next Thursday. Oh, how tedious. If they only knew the brain power that was required to get that show on air, they would be amazed. How are you finding life during these strange times? I'm actually enjoying the, the chance slightly to reset and to appreciate the smaller things in life and the fact that we've got a roof over our head. And I've enjoyed sort of spending time with my, my children and understanding uh, where they're at with school and maybe able to sort of help uh, with some some issues that they're struggling with and also just be amazed at what they can do. In a weird way, uh, obviously it's been a very sad for many people, but I think it's been useful for a lot of us to perhaps reconsider where, you know, where we are in our lives, where we want to be going and perhaps get it off the daily treadmill a little bit. And perhaps uh, when things start to crank up again, perhaps we can do things a bit smarter and in a more purposeful way. Hmm. Thank you, David, for watching my quiz show playlist. And thank you for talking to me about it. It's been a great pleasure. Now, stay indoors. Stay indoors.